Welcome along to this bite-sized edition of Tax and Lunch. Thanks for joining me. I'm Vincent Lachardi. You're listening to the podcast for tax advisors to high net worth individuals, wealthy family groups and private clients. I'm really excited that you're joining me for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your team so they can also gain the inside perspective. Let's listen in. It's okay to be boring with your trust resolutions. And I want to run you through a couple simple reasons as to why. The first one is if you are streaming income, capital, franked, unfranked dividends, etc., you may potentially lose access to the small business concessions. One of the requirements for certain small business concessions is the significant individual test. This particular test uh, is a a 20% threshold, but the 20% to a certain beneficiary is determined by the lowest percentage of what they receive from the trust. And I'll give you a practical example of what I'm referring to. On the right-hand side, and and we've met these characters before in one of my previous tax and lunches, on the right-hand side of the slide here, we've got a family trust. All the dividends go to the bucket company. The capital gain goes to an individual, for example, the patriarch of the group. That capital gain is three and a half mil. Joe has just sold his business. He wants to claim the small business concessions. And the other trust income, there might be some rental in there, for example, goes off to the kids. $200,000, put aside 100A for a second, goes off to the kids. In that scenario, Joe does not receive the any of the income of the trust. He's only getting the capital gain because the resolution here has been streamed and the income has been streamed. The ATO actually has an ATOID on this, which is 2012.99. In that scenario, there is no significant individual beneficiary of this particular family trust and the small business concessions will be lost. So it's absolutely crucial. My usual approach, and you know, certainly don't take this as, as tax advice for all of your client circumstances based on a webinar, But my usual approach in these sorts of things is if your client has a significant or material event, perhaps they've sold, they're they're getting out, they've sold a business of a lifetime, they're making a truckload of money, be boring. Distribute everything to one person. Capital gain goes to one person. Income goes to one person. Dividends goes to one person. Be boring. You may, in in a very simple sense, have a client that, in, uh, in aggregate terms, pays more tax than had they streamed, et cetera, but you'll probably be saving a lot of headaches for your clients if you're boring. So hopefully the, uh, that gives you a sense of that one. Now, historically, and there's a fair bit of text on this slide, so I'm not going to read all this for you, but historically what I have seen is that uh, trust resolutions will have income equalisation clauses So this is where, and I think historically, to be frank, coming out of Bamford, this was to avoid Section 90 
9A assessments. What accountants would do is that they would equate the income or accounting position of the trust with its tax position. And so the accounting position was determined based on what the tax position was under section 95. I, I think this was done to avoid a 99A assessment. I get very nervous when I see these income equalization clauses. The reason why is they can have quite significant unintended consequences if you don't really know what to look for. To give you a sense of where you'll end up with a mismatch, if you have an income equalization clause, you will be including in trust income, possibly franking credits. That doesn't make a lot of sense because the trust does not derive any franking credits. Division 7A amounts, from an accounting perspective, even if you trigger Division 7A, that's not income. The capital gains discount portion, that is also a mismatch. So the discount portion might be income for accounting purposes, depending on how you've prepared your accounts, but it is not income for tax purposes. We get that discount portion tax-free. And so we end up with a mismatch. On the expense side, you might have for accounting purposes, you might claim uh, entertainment expenses, but for tax purposes, those entertainment expenses are probably denied. And lastly, there are a number of other examples on this, but the market value substitution rule. The market value substitution rule will not be income for accounting purposes, but it certainly might be for tax. Now, the ATO has a ruling on this. It's still in draft, which is a bit odd given that it was published in 2012. So it's, it's a 10-year draft. Uh, but it gives some examples of this. I don't agree with all of what is in that uh, draft ruling, but certainly if you have a look, there are, and I'll come to a couple paragraphs in a second, where the ATO makes this point. Uh, this is a real risk for clients because you can end up in a circumstance where you have a 99A assessment causing top marginal tax rate, loss of discount. You might not have access to losses it is a disaster for clients. Now, practically, and we've actually seen this over the last year or two play out. Um, you might recall that, that when the government passed instant asset write-off and temporary full expensing rules in the last couple of years, there was, there was then this concern that if certain taxpayers could not opt out of those rules, then there might be, for example, loss of franking credits. And so this is why your um, depreciation rules, there is the option to opt out for this precise reason, uh, because you end up in a scenario where the trust has no distributable income. I, I've read, and just to make this point um, for on a practical level, depending how you prepare your client's accounts for accounting purposes, not the tax return, if you use an income equalization clause, the effect of that would mean that there may be a number of assets in the business which are not represented on the balance sheet. The reason for that is if you've adopted for accounting purposes the tax position, then you would have fully expensed a number of assets that would otherwise be depreciable and sit on the balance sheet. 
So what I see a number of accountants do is they prepare accounting accounts, if I can call it that, and then they do their tax rec to exclude or bring out the tax adjustments as opposed to preparing the accounts on a tax basis. Now, just on the 99A assessments, I've got there and I, I won't read this out. The ATO doesn't necessarily um, agree with this particular view, but it's in paragraph 133 of the ruling. And the ATO says that certain notional amounts, well, this is the argument, the certain notional amounts, for example, franking credits, market value substitution rule, discount portions of capital gains, et cetera, it can include certain types of foreign income. They cannot be distributed to beneficiaries because they are notional amounts in a circumstance where you have an income equalization clause. The effect of that is you can't make the beneficiary presently entitled and you've got a 99A assessment. So I won't run through that in significant detail. I'll leave that to you to, to read the rule. Just as an end of financial year tip, we're starting to come to, we've probably got a couple minutes left. We're running pretty tight. For those of you who haven't read the ATO's draft ruling, uh, which has come out draft determination in the last six weeks or so when the 100A rules came out, the ATO um, has touched on the precise way that you prepare your income resolution will determine the year in which Division 7A is triggered if you're distributing uh, to a bucket company, for example. And so if your entitlement in your resolution is expressed as a percentage, so 25% to uh, Steve and 75% to the bucket company, then the Division 7A loan arises in the financial year after you've drafted the resolution. And I'm assuming you've drafted the resolution on 30 June. So for example, if at the end of the 2022 financial year, I prepare a resolution, there are some timing issues, which I'm not gonna to touch on for this particular ruling. I prepare my resolution on 30 June 22. It's expressed as a percentage my Division 7A loan does not arise until the 2023 financial year. This directly affects when you have to put the loan agreement in place, when you have to make the first minimum yearly repayment. So the structure of your trust resolution will be crucial going forward for Division 7A purposes. Equally, if your entitlement or the beneficiary's entitlement is expressed as a dollar amount, the Division 7A loan arises in the same financial year as the resolution. So instead of saying 25% to Steve and the balance to the bucket company, if I said on 30 June, $25,000 to Steve and $75,000 to the bucket company, the Division 7A loan arises on 30 June. So in effect, I am either going to be delaying or bringing forward the Division 7A loan essentially by 12 months. <music>